As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, we like to talk about money, don't we? And you know what I realized the other day? There's, well, we've spoken a lot about different types of money. So we've done cash, we've done historical forms of money, we've done a ton on Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrencies. We've even talked about that time you developed your own cryptocurrency. But there's one type of money that we haven't actually done an episode on yet. Tell me more. So uh, there is a type of money that sort of straddles the world of digital currencies and traditional forms of money, I think. And that is the central bank digital currency or CBDC for short. Uh, yeah, no, this is uh, an interesting area because, yes, alongside the sort of emergence of uh, private, uh, independent digital currencies, we have seen central banks all around the world do some efforts towards implementing their own or creating their own piloting projects of essentially having, uh, yeah, digital versions of uh, cash, I guess. I guess you would say. And I think China is fairly far along mm-hmm. with its endeavors, but I don't think any of them have really taken off yet, but definitely an area that I think a lot of people are uh, pretty interested in for a lot of different uh, policy aims. Yeah, that's the thing is uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect this to be the case, but a lot of the digital currency exploration that's going on right now is very closely tied to monetary policy. And I have to confess, before we start, I have never entirely understood the concept of central bank digital currencies. I've never quite understood what the problem central banks are trying to solve is. And I've never quite understood how they will function alongside uh, traditional cash and bank reserves and things like that. But I'm happy to say, I think we have the perfect person to discuss all of this today and to get into a, a lot of those themes. We're going to be talking with Benoit Carré, who was, of course, on the board of the ECB from 2011 to 2019. And he's now head of the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub. And that group recently published a report on CBDCs, uh, part of a, a sort of task force that involved a bunch of central banks exploring this topic. So I think it's going to be a good conversation. 
And hopefully it answers uh, some of the questions that I at least and probably a lot of other people have had about central bank digital currencies for some time. Yeah, no, I'm really excited because I'm with you in that um, I too have had numerous questions about what purpose they serve, what the central banks see as the reason for mm-hmm. uh, launching them. So hopefully we can get a lot of questions answered. And also hopefully, you know, maybe we could squeeze in a few questions about uh, just the economy and uh, monetary policy as well, because of course, uh, Benoit having uh, served at the ECB for so long, hopefully we get some thoughts about the state of the world today, which is of course still an extraordinary time. Yeah, and I think weirdly there might be some natural overlap between digital currencies and what's going on right now in the global economy. So without further ado, uh, Benoit Curé, thank you so much for coming on Oddbots. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So in the intro, Joe and I both just admitted to not necessarily understanding digital currencies from central banks. Maybe just to begin with, you could sort of explain the concept. And and maybe one thing that's always confused me is if we were to see something like a digital dollar or a digital euro, how would that differ to, for instance, me holding a euro or a dollar in a traditional electronic bank account? What is it that makes that digital money different to, you know, a line in, uh, in my bank? So um, yeah, I mean these are these are excellent questions because uh, you may wonder. I mean we're we're living in a in a world which is already uh, massively uh, dematerialized. Uh, most of money, I mean more than ninety percent, ninety five percent of money is already digital. Hmm. So you might wonder why why is all of a sudden are we discussing a digital currency? And so we're here to discuss central bank digital currency, right? CBDC, and so. Let me focus on, on the on the CB in, in CBDC. That is a definition of CBDC. It's money that is issued by the central bank, meaning it's a liability of the, of the central bank. Um, it's not a, the liability of a commercial bank or any other player. It is digital, so it's not physical like banknotes. And it's not issued to uh, banks as part of monetary policy as we, uh, as we know it, which is as bank reserves, right? So bank reserves is, as you, if you think about it, it's money that banks have on their account with a central bank. It is digital, so it is central bank digital currency. And it has been existing for, for decades. So here we're talking of any liability of the central bank, which is digital, but not issued to uh, commercial banks as part of the uh, implementation of monetary policy, which means two things. Either it is digital and issued directly to citizens. So it's a the equivalent, digital equivalent of a banknote, and that would be entirely new. Or it is issued to commercial banks, but not as a deposit on an account, but as a, a token, for instance. Which gives gives the answer to your initial question. So what's the what's what's the question we are we are trying to answer? What's the problem statement? Well, there are two problem statements. The first one is what happens if cash disappears, if our citizens don't want to use banknotes anymore. And are we happy if uh, the only way they have to pay for their expenses, consumption, uh, is to use commercial money, money issued by banks, to draw from their bank accounts? Or do we want to keep providing them with central bank money, which today doesn't exist uh, in a digital form? So that's the first question. And the second question is, what happens if at the core of the system, 
banks or financial market infrastructures would need uh, central bank money to settle the transactions in a way that is not a, uh, an account at the central bank. And that could be a token, for instance. So imagine a, a future, maybe a near future, where some financial market infrastructures would be um, transacting, exchanging tokens on, uh, on DLTs, right? If you want to keep settling these transactions uh, in central bank money, then you need a way to either connect the DLT with a traditional payment infrastructure or to issue a central bank token to the DLT. And that's what we call wholesale CBDC. So there are two answers. Either it's wholesale CBDC because uh, the, uh, in, the technology underlying financial infrastructures is changing, or it's retail CBDC because uh, in some places, at least cash may be disappearing. So these are two separate questions at both ends of the financial system, at the front end and at the back end. First of all, that was very helpful, just sort of overview of what you're doing or what the vision is. I guess one way that I sort of think about it or uh, hear what you're saying is rather than seeing the analogy as, okay, here's uh, money. If I have it in a bank, it's a liability of a bank. If I have it in some sort of payment app like PayPal or Venmo, that dollar or that euro is a liability of PayPal or Venmo. This is more like cash, something that I hold in the wallet and uh, something that's a direct um, liability of the central bank. So that part makes sense to me. What is the fundamental advantage, however, of doing this? So we have cash that currently exists. We have uh, online money or sort of uh, bank liability money, as you described it. What, from a policy standpoint, would, in your view, the creation and widespread adoption of a digital euro or a digital dollar or a digital pound, what are the uh, advantages that you see for governments and central banks to actually launch them? So my my answer, and, and that might, might might be surprising coming from a central banker, but that my answer would be that it's not even a policy discussion, it is a political discussion. Because the key question here is, are we satisfied if all money used by citizens for their daily transactions is commercial money? That is, are we satisfied if the whole functioning, the daily functioning of the economy is a, a at the end, a conversation between citizens and, and banks, right? Or do we want the uh, central bank as a public institution to be part of it? And what's very important here, uh, and also for the, for the rest of our discussion, is that the answer might be different in different places. That is, in some places, uh, citizens may trust, and in many places, I guess, citizens would trust the central bank better than Visa, MasterCard, or, 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 or Facebook, or, or Citibank, right? In other places, or in other corners of society, that might not be the case. And you, you will find many people who would trust Citibank more better than their central bank. And you, would, you, you find people who trust Bitcoin more better than the dollar or the euro. Or the euro. And so the conclusion here is that we, we have to let, to let people decide for themselves which kind of money they want to use, provided that they are well informed uh, on the risks, uh, on, the, on, what, on the implications. But the, the emerging consensus is that a substantial fraction of society will ask to, to keep that contact with the central bank, which is the ability to use a direct liability on a public institution under uh, parliamentary supervision uh, 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 as part of a political system. And if we want to keep that kind of access, then we need to do CBDC. So that's really interesting because you framed more direct contact between people and the central bank through CBDCs as 
an advantage or something desirable. But I know one of the criticisms of digital money is that there is a concern that you're in effect reducing the role of commercial banks in the economy, and that might have unintended consequences for the transmission of monetary policy or the way the financial system actually works. Uh, Some people have talked about the potential to increase uh, bank runs, for instance, if people have a central bank-issued alternative that's seen as a safe place to park their money. They might fly out of bank deposits and and go into digital money. How are you thinking about about that particular issue? How are you thinking about how CBDC might impact the financial system as it exists today? So that's a that's a very important point, Tracy, and that's that's also why why I'm saying that we need an ecosystem, right? Uh, and uh, contrary to what what people sometimes fear or think, uh, the uh, there is no uh, intention by central banks to to have a monopoly on all kinds of money. The the economy is uh, operated with commercial money today. Uh, when you when you when you buy a beer in a bar, uh, it's very very likely that you're going to pay either with a credit card or with your telephone, and that will be eventually coming from your bank account. And it's commercial money. Uh, that's not a, a claim on the central bank. And we're going to keep it like that, right? So so we'll 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 keep an ecosystem where you'll have different forms of mean, different means of payments, different forms of money, and most of it will be commercial. The question is, do we want to keep central bank money at the heart of the system to uh, to 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 make it stable, right? And one of the of the key considerations that we we have in thinking about this future ecosystem is exactly what you mentioned, which is we don't want CBDC to to kill banks, right? We don't want to go to the to the extreme of a system where all economic players would use CBDC um, and banks would at best be kinds of conduits who would. Uh, 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 buy assets or, or, or extend credits and and fund on the uh, on capital markets. You know, narrow banks or, or, or a system of sovereign money, as it's, as it's uh, sometimes called. Or Switzerland had a vote, as you may remember, on some something called Folgel, which was rejected. So that's people that that's something that most people don't want, and that's something that regulators and central bankers don't want, because they see a value in uh, the uh, existence of commercial banks as institutions who take risk, who transform. Credit would take maturity risk and credit risk, uh, and would do all kind of uh, financial intermediation in the economy. We don't want to kill that system, and so there is a, a, an active discussion on how to to mitigate the kind of risks uh, you're highlighting, Tracy, which is that uh, CBDC would take over bank deposits and would uh, would uh, would make banks more vulnerable. Uh, and there are different answers. We can go into the details if you wish. And one of the of the important discussions we'll have in the coming months and years is uh, what's the best answer uh, if we don't want this to happen. I want to ask, take it from the other angle. I mean, one of the nice things about cash, as we know it, if I pay for something in a bar, if I uh, you know go out and meet up with friends and want to split a check somewhere or anything else, is that it's anonymous. Person A or somewhat anonymous person A can pay something to person B without person C knowing about it. There are all kinds of uh, reasons why people prize privacy. Uh, I'm curious if in your vision of a CBDC, A, would two people be able to make a transaction without some third party entity having a uh, sort of centralized knowledge about who just made that uh, transaction? And I'm curious, in your conversations around uh, with regulators and central bankers, I'm sure you talk to 
a lot of different groups, law enforcement agencies about their concerns, FinCEN, you think about know your customer anti-money laundering laws. And I'm curious whether in your conversations and consultations, you've also talked to uh, privacy groups about their concerns. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've been doing that in particular when uh, last year um, there was a, a related discussion, not on, on CBDC, but on stable coins, right? Um, start, starting from Libra, right? right. Um, and there has been an active discussion uh, in, in policy uh, circles on how to regulate stable coins. And the FSB just came with a, with a report on that, with, uh, with uh, guidelines on, uh, on uh, stablecoin regulation. And, and privacy is also a key, a key issue. And uh, by the way, something we found out is that financial regulators don't often talk to, to privacy regulators uh, or to privacy groups. And so that's, uh, that's a, uh, it might sound like a uh, kind of an ancillary uh, discussion, but it's actually very important that this, this kind of technical innovation uh, forces us to also to rethink the way we, we do regulation uh, and to connect, to connect silos, right? Uh, which right. which uh, until recently weren't connected at all. And so, uh, and so we are talking now with privacy uh, regulators and with privacy groups. And that's an instance of uh, choices that have to be that have to be made by, by society and, and, and through a political process. Because on the one hand, you have a demand, you have demand for privacy, which is there and which is absolutely uh, uh, legitimate and which is uh, already in some places like Europe, very much uh, enshrined and hard, hardwired into law uh, with, uh, with, G- with GDPR right. in particular. But on the other hand, you also have uh, regulation and, 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 uh, and, and laws against uh, money laundering, against the financing of terrorism, etc. Which are equally important, uh, right? And so, so any any CBDC architecture will have to strike a balance between these two uh, aspirations. And the exact the way we'll turn the dial, uh, in my view, should be a political discussion because I don't I don't see how central bankers or bank supervisors could decide on on, the, on that kind of things. It has to be a political uh, discussion. And again, there are ways to reconcile. So, for instance, I'm just giving an example. So I'm not I'm not saying. That's the way to go. But just to illustrate, you could imagine a, a system where CBDC would be distributed by banks, right? So the front end would be banks. Uh, you would keep talking to your bank. You wouldn't you wouldn't go directly to the to the Fed or the HKMA or the or the ECB. You would get uh, your CBDC from your bank, just as you get your bank notes from your ATM. So exactly the same as today. Banks would buy a given quantity of CBDC from the central bank using their uh, bank reserves, just as they buy banknotes today. And see, the central bank could regulate uh, the amount of CBDC for monetary policy purposes, but the central bank would not know uh, exactly to which CBDC uh, has been uh, distributed. And that would be subject to AML and CFT and and generally no customer uh, diligence and and know your client, client rules, just as any transaction today. So that's a possible way that would reconcile different aspects. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You mentioned Libra briefly, which is Facebook's attempt at a, at a stable coin. And this sort of re- reminds me of, of another big discussion when it comes to CBDC. And I, I guess part of it is that if you're going to launch digital money, even if you're a central bank, you're going to have to have some sort of payment system that goes along with it. And so central banks are going to have to decide whether to build and run their own payment systems or maybe to team up with companies in the private sector who can do that for them. I'm curious, private corporations like Facebook are are pretty good (laughs) at technology. How do central banks compete against companies like that, like a Facebook, or how do they work together with them for the payment system? So we shouldn't be competing against against Facebook because we are not in the same line of business, right? <laughs> we, are, we are absolutely not in the same line of business. Uh, and, and in a sense, that's uh, if I if I may take a step back, that that's exactly why mm-hmm. these um, you mentioned the report which was issued uh, by seven central banks together with the BIS, um, and that's a, a working group I was co-chairing with uh, Sir John Conley from the Bank of England. It, it started exactly with with the consideration that we we central bankers have to come back to first principles, um, and and too often the discussion on digital money, digital currency, um, started from the wrong place. Like started from the technological end of the discussion. Are we going to do CBDC using blockchain? And if it's a blockchain, is it going to be Corda or Hyperledger or whatever else? Which is an important discussion in due time, but uh, it's not it's not the right the right place to start from. We want to start from first principles, and uh, as a central banker, I would say our job is to uh, is twofold: is to ensure price stability or monetary stability, meaning that you should have the uh, ways and means to implement your monetary policy, whichever monetary policy you've decided as a as a monetary policy committee. That's the first thing, and CBDC should not hamper that. And if it can help, it's even better. We can discuss it later. And the second thing is financial stability. And an essential part of financial stability is the existence of core payment systems at the heart of the financial uh, infrastructure, which connect uh, financial institutions, which connect uh, jurisdictions, and uh, which allow real-time settlement in central bank money. Right, and so the key role of the central banks really uh, uh, is uh, at the heart of the system to provide stability. And we don't want to take over. And there are many, many things, most things that we we, won't, we wouldn't do well and we're not going to do. So to give an obvious example, if uh, CBDC comes as, as a token, most likely it's going to be handled in uh, in wallets, right? So you would have a wallet on your phone, say, with, uh, with CBDC, uh, with central bank tokens in it. That's not something central banks should be doing. It's, it's very obvious to, to all of us that wallets are something for the private sector to do, right? And so, and so there, there, the, there is room for everyone. <laughs> there is room for everyone. The key thing is uh, any form of commercial money has to be regulated, right? And there, there might be uh, financial stability considerations, which would lead us to impose some requirements like settlement in central bank money. But apart from that, we, we need the private sector to innovate. Uh, all that innovation will come from the private sector. I'm not. Uh, I'm not aware that central bankers are, are particularly good at, uh, you know, at finding new technologies. <laughs> That's not what we do. Can I ask a question? I mean, you mentioned stable coins. We talked about Libra, and I think that there is a sort of 
spectrum of what we see in the stablecoin space from sort of extremely uh, projects that attempt to be very uh, legitimate. Facebook is Facebook, Libra is probably one of them to others that are probably a little dicier. What is the regulatory case for the existence of stable coins? Because central bankers, regulators have been pretty permissive, it seems, of them for a while. And I'm curious why, from your perspective, they are beneficial and why uh, sort of uh, people should be able to use a currency uh, on a distributed ledger somewhere that is ultimately backed up by a uh, sort of licensed uh, licensed bank somewhere. Well, I wouldn't really see um, stable coins as as currencies, so it's it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, I would see stable coins as um, as new payment systems, which are very well, very integrated, uh, back to end, uh, closed loop uh, payment systems. So it's a, it's it's a little bit different from the kind of innovation that we've seen until recently uh, in the payment world, which was really at the front end, right? It was about you know providing you with a better interface, uh, providing you with an interface on your smartphone, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, we see uh, payment architectures which are entirely private, which uh, which are uh, Encompassing and go and include the the back end that is the the pipelines that will that will bring money from one place to another right uh, which wasn't the case so far and um, and that might be okay that might be okay if it's well regulated if um, consumers or investors are protected uh, and know the risk uh, the risks they are taking that might be okay to have that kind of payment systems I don't see I don't really see that as a currency I see that as a new means of payment which can be convenient but which uh, also raises risks. And these risks have been highlighted last year uh, in, the G7, in the G7 report on stablecoins and, and, uh, and, and recently by the, by the FSB. Um, and the risks come from the fact that these new projects are, are global. Libra is, a, is an obvious example. And so there are risks to the, for instance, to the, um, to the functioning of the international monetary system, which are entirely new, which you, uh, you didn't have with uh, earlier forms of cryptocurrency. Like what happens if uh, you have a, a, a major stablecoin which is being issued and you start to see substitution with, uh, with local currency in some smaller jurisdiction? That would be a concern for that jurisdiction, would be a concern for the IMF, would be a concern for the World Bank, and that's something that we want to discuss. So, so you see new risks coming, right? But uh, there is no reason why a priori uh, stablecoins should be uh, rejected. And, and 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 let me let me just as a just for for the record mention that there are other forms of stablecoin, which hardly anyone speaks about, which are wholesale stablecoins. Right? Imagine a coin that would be issued by a by a large commercial bank to uh, to settle transaction uh, uh, within a few a uh, small group of clients, and that would be 100% backed by by central bank money. That's a stablecoin. It's much less of a discussion because it's not going to reach uh, billions of people, but only a, a, a a handful of uh, of commercial banks, so that's pretty easy to uh, to uh, to understand and to regulate. Uh, but it's also coming. My understanding is that one of the big debates about digital money from central banks is whether it would strengthen the transmission of monetary policy. So on on the one hand, if you have CBDC, central banks can directly influence interest rates on digital money, and they basically control it. But on the other hand, you're, as we discussed, potentially setting up a competitor to bank deposits, and we're not exactly sure whether or not that might change 
the sensitivity of the demand for that type of money to interest rates. I'd be curious to get your views on this. How do you see CBDC interacting with monetary policy? That's a really good question. It's a little bit the elephant in the room because that's a, it's a really good question. And it's, it's, a, it's a question that uh, most uh, central banks are working hard to uh, not to answer <laughs> and uh, see take the uh, the report we've been we've been discussing we 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 kind of allude to that but we are uh, very early on upfront we say we're not going to discuss it right and there is a simple reason to that that which is that monetary policy is a uh, is a different mandate and is this, this it's uh, it's very national it's very domestic and it's being uh, uh, decided in different places like i mean monetary policy committees um, and so uh, central banks don't want to, to mix up the two discussions because if CBDC comes and the way they will use it for monetary, to do monetary policy is something that they want to decide for themselves. And so the, the case for international cooperation today is not on the monetary policy side, it's on the payment side because we want the, the payment architecture to, to work smoothly and it is global, right? Uh, and this is why this is why we, you already see and you're going to see a lot more international coordination on CBDC and on digital money generally, because payments are the uh, the, the backbone of the uh, of the international financial architecture, and so you want to see coordination for the system to be stable. While monetary policy is a sovereign matter, is decided locally, people and 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 governors want to talk to their and to report to their to their parliaments, right, to U.S. Congress, to the European Parliament, uh, etc. That's not something they want to discuss uh, in the open air uh, and uh, internationally. So, so that was a little bit of a sociological or political, you know, detour to 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 explain to explain to you why we're not discussing it. Now, of course, it is an issue. Of course, it is an issue that central banks will have to uh, to decide for themselves. Uh, and I, I really see a, a key question uh, coming for, for each and every central bank to decide, which is, do you want to do CBDC for monetary policy reasons, or do you want to make it as neutral as possible on the way or with respect to the way you uh, implement your monetary policy? And that's a decision to take early on because it impacts your, your architecture. It impacts the way you're going to do CBDC, right? If you want CBDC to be accessed by a broad range of economic players and if you want to be able to control both the quantity and the price of that particular form of money which is what monetary policy is about then it's different from deciding that uh, you uh, you're going to issue a given amount of cbdc and then uh, you uh, you don't want to know where it's going for instance and so there is a potential to use cbdc in a kind of a a tailor-made way, right, in a kind of very, very granular way to um, to bring money to particular places, to uh, to to, uh, to pump money down the last mile, uh, as uh, as my colleague Agustin Carstens has, has once said. That's, that's that's something that today central banks very much want to see, mm. money being pumped down the last mile and, and reaching all players, all corners of society. Um, but if you want to do CBDC to do that, then uh, you probably have to uh, to design your CBDC in a different way, and and central banks have not decided yet, really. So we're we're a little bit at a crossroads there, and different central banks may take uh, different decisions. And so my person my, my personal take, if you're <laughs> which which doesn't commit anyone, uh, and I'm not even doing monetary policy because I'm at the BIS, so it's it's really my personal view, is that uh, it is worth uh, reflecting on that. 
because we've um, we're kind of at the end of a cycle where monetary policy, we've made monetary policy implementation incredibly sophisticated since uh, the great financial crisis. And again, now uh, through the, uh, the corona crisis, but most of it, if not all of it, it goes through capital markets, right? So we have very different sophisticated ways, complex ways to uh, influence on capital, on financial market expectations and on, uh, and, and, and on pumping money uh, in and out of capital markets. But at some point that's hitting a limit because there are places in the economy where money just, uh, which money just cannot, uh, cannot reach. It also might create political issues. Because incredibly, incredibly, societies see monetary policy as being a, a conversation between central banks and uh, and capital market participants, uh, and they feel uh, excluded from that conversation. So that that was my my last word at the ECB last year in my last speech in my last meeting at the ECB. The conclusion was that if uh, if monetary policy remains a conversation between central banks and capital markets, then we shouldn't be surprised if people don't trust us, right? Uh, and that's a little bit what we've seen. And CBDC can be a way to reconnect central banks with uh, with people if it's if it's done well. But some central banks might want to go there, some don't want to go there, and that's fine. They're all different. I mean, this might be a good moment to sort of seg a little bit to some of the bigger policy questions that the world faces right now. But it seems to me like a point that you made, which I find really interesting in a few of your answers, is like a lot of these are just political questions and political questions have to be made to some extent outside of the central bank. But I guess one of them is, do we want monetary authorities to have the ability to more easily put buying power in the hands of normal people, not just function through capital markets. And it sounds like the sort of CBDC conversation that the world is having is sort of a parallel potential conversation to this question of, do we want to expand the tools that central banks have to get people money? Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. And I mean, the fact that there are political dimensions to it doesn't imply that central banks should uh, defer to uh, to politicians, right? Uh, CBDC CBDC is about the future of money. It's about the future of monetary policy. It's about the future of payments. And so central banks should be on on top of that discussion, which 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 they are now. But what I guess what we are both saying is there are dimensions. There are some trade offs. Where you need to to get a sense of uh, of the preferences of society, uh, you need to uh, you need to take the pulse of society, and that's why in all places CBDC will require um, extensive consultations, which is the way the, uh, uh, for instance, the Riksbank in uh, in Stockholm has taken, which is the way the ECB now is taking. Uh, you need to consult a lot. That's not something that you want to do under closed door uh, in a uh, in a central bank somewhere. Uh, you uh, that's something where uh, there, are, there are many dimensions where which need uh, engagement with uh, with society at large. So I, I know there's been some discussion on potentially tiering interest rates when it comes to CBDC and and maybe even allowing the central bank to impose negative rates on digital money that they issue. That probably says more about where we are in terms of uh, unconventional monetary policy as a whole than it does necessarily about CBDC. But maybe that should be a cue to um, to broaden the conversation and, and talk a little bit about what's going on in the world at the moment. I, I think when you were at the ECB, there was an assumption that monetary policy would eventually get back to normal, but it seems increasingly likely now that low interest rates and asset purchase programs, things like that, are here to stay. Do you think we're ever 
going to get back to uh, the days of boring central banking where we, we would never be talking about negative interest rates when it comes to CBDC. Yeah, well, that's true. It's true that I'm, <clears throat> I'm now old enough that I remember the days where interest rates were positive. <laughs> <laughs> like, see, these were the good old days. And the, uh, the corona the corona crisis, the corona shock has uh, has uh, disrupted everything. So uh, I think it's fair to uh, it's fair to say that there is no uh, prospect, there is no short term prospect of, of of monetary policy normalization uh, anytime soon, because of the uh, the amount, the extraordinary amount of uncertainty that we have, which which comes from from outside the economy, which comes from the um, from the cycle of uh, lockdowns and uh, uh, and uh, and waves, uh, etc. And uh, so as long as we'll, we'll have these kind of waves and uncertainty on, on lockdowns, there will be uh, the economy will be in a state of uh, uh, very high fragility because uh, expectations will uh, because there is no way that they are, that, that 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 businesses or consumers can form expectations about the future. So that 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 kind of uh, compresses the uh, the time horizon of uh, of both uh, businesses and, and and consumers in a way that that makes it very very difficult to. Uh, to plan for the long term, which is what central banks should be doing. No, in the uh, if you think of the kind of assignment of, of roles in the uh, in the economic policy making world, uh, you would expect central bankers to care for the long term, while politicians are kind of prisoners of their of short term uh, uh, incentives and constraints and political cycles and, and the like. Um, and you would like central bankers to think for the for the future. But but today they can't because it's just too too uncertain. So it's very difficult to uh, to, uh, to 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 kind of make make plans about the future of monetary policy. And the, I think the only uh, kind of a sensible conclusion is that uh, central banks need maximum flexibility to to cope with all kind of outcomes. Uh, so they need to keep to keep all their options open. So. I mean, because of this sort of extraordinary moment, and you mentioned it, I think, in one of your first answers, we're in an era in which uh, there's sort of a perception, but probably also reality, that there really is only so much, um, so many tools at the central bank's disposal right now. We have more people talking about, okay, uh, we need more aggressive uh, fiscal policy uh, across the developed world. Even the IMF has said as such. A, do you believe um, that that is the case, that there is an argument for uh, fiscal authorities to do more? But more importantly, do you think sort of going forward, and even as this crisis hopefully sort of fades into the rearview mirror, do you think it's worth a sort of broader rethink about a more permanent role for uh, fiscal policy in terms of macro stabilization, such that we're not entirely dependent on central banks to balance the economy every time, um, you know, things Things go bad. It's a uh, it's a pity that you would need a uh, a global pandemics to uh, to have that discussion, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it has started a little bit before, but yeah, it does feel as though the pandemic has accelerated the discussion, if nothing. Else. Yeah, I mean, there are there. I think the the, the discussion. I mean, it it, uh, it, uh, it 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 looks different in different places. No, we're thinking there. In the U.S., you have a very decent tradition of uh, of uh, stabilization policies, both on the monetary side and on the fiscal side, and of a good uh, good uh, uh, complementarity between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Uh, and the economy is flexible and resilient and strong enough that uh, you uh, you can stay in that mode, right? Because the economy always comes back, and so you're not stuck in a state of the world where you would have to to do. Uh, 
very active monetary policy and very active fiscal policy at the same time uh, because the economy is, comes back, right? It's more difficult in Europe for different reasons. One reason being that uh, we've, we've never been able, so I say we as a European, right, uh, to now, uh, we've never been able to find the right uh, fiscal framework. And so fiscal policy has never been, has never been very uh, uh, helpful in uh, uh, helping uh, the ECB uh, manage the cycle. And it's becoming more helpful now. Uh, and you've discussed it uh, with with my former colleague Vitor Constancio, and I uh, I, I agree with with a lot of what he what he told you, that is now happening, and it's a it's a very good development. But uh, the other reason is that the economy is uh, in in Europe is not nearly as flexible than in the US. So um, if you're in that kind of of extraordinary situation where you need to uh, to turn the dial and uh, and have a very active monetary policy and fiscal policy at the same time because the economy is not responding. You don't know how much how how much time it will come to go back to normal, right? Because the economy uh, is not flexible enough to do it by itself. So that's that's a different situation, uh, which also uh, calls for a little bit of caution, right? Because you can be stuck there in that kind of uh, in that kind of state of the world for much longer. And so so far so good. I mean the. What what fiscal authorities and monetary authorities have done so far is exactly what you were suggesting and what what you what we want to see. That is good complementarity between monetary policy and, and fiscal policy. Even in emerging markets, economies, by the way, you are now seeing some, I mean, many emerging market economies um, doing QE and the government is issuing more domestic debt. I mean, domestic currency denominated debt, which the central bank can partly buy. Um, and that's a way to uh, kind of strengthen the complementarity between monetary policy uh, and fiscal policy. And that has given them much more policy space. Uh, so you're seeing that happening in different places. The question is what happens if that is that a situation that can last for many years? Because then debt, public debt will be building up. Uh, private debt will be building up as well, or some of it will be transferred onto the, the balance sheet of the government. Um, and at some point, Whatever the efforts of the central bank, or the uh, debt will be will be uh, will be so high that you will need some kind of rescheduling or restructuring. Uh, and so, if 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 the situation with the virus stays uh, as it is for a, a number of uh, for another uh, few years, which of course nobody nobody uh, hopes, what today looks like good cooperation between monetary policy and fiscal policy, uh, and and respectful of of everyone's mandate, right? Not not harmful to the independence of of central banks. That's something that can, that could become much more difficult to sustain, because you will have to start discussions on some some ways to. Uh, to, uh, to share the fiscal burden. Uh, and these discussions can be politically very difficult and very harmful. And, and it's already starting in the, in the developing world. I mean, there is an active discussion on uh, debt uh, restructuring and debt, uh, debt uh, initiatives in the, uh, in the developing world. Um, if we stay there for a few more years, that will gradually come to the developed world. Uh, and that will, uh, that will come with huge political difficulties. So um, I guess the only conclusion is that you want to, you want a vaccine to be found very quickly. That's the conclusion. I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> Definitely. We all agree with that. Yeah. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market. 
giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You mentioned the interview we did with your former colleague, Vitor Constancio. And one of the things that came up quite a bit in that conversation was inflation or the lack thereof. Rather than ask you the same question that we asked Vitor, which is, do central banks understand inflation? I want to ask a slightly different one, which is, why do you think that consumers or the average person's perception of inflation seems to differ from what central banks are looking at? And I think there's a stat out there that, um, according to a European Commission survey, households thought annual inflation was something like 9% between 2004 and 2015, whereas we all know, uh, having this conversation now, that inflation was actually below the 2% target and quite far below it. So where do you think that discrepancy is actually coming from? Well, it comes from the uh, the way statisticians and, cent- and central bankers look at inflation is a, is very, it's from a southern feet, right? It's a bird's eye view on, on everything that's going on in the economy across uh, uh, social groups, across age groups, uh, across different places. Uh, and it, so it totally kind of ignores the, the, the diversity of consumption habits. Um, and, the, and also the fact that you buy different, different goods and services at different frequencies over time. So individuals are, are, are biased towards uh, overweighting uh, goods and services that they buy very often. Like, like obviously, I mean, food and dairy and uh, and transports and uh, and uh, and refueling your car and that kind of things. Uh, while and the price of uh, of uh, smartphones might be collapsing. I mean, that's not something you buy very often. So uh, when people ask you, come and ask you about inflation, you're not going to think about that. So there are huge cognitive biases which which are which are just normal. And central banks have not really made the effort to kind of translate their concepts into concepts that people can uh, relate to. Uh, and I think that's a big challenge for the future, that uh, central banks are absolutely right to, to look at the economy in the aggregate at, at, a, uh, at an aggregate level. But uh, when, they, when, they, when they formulate their policies and their, and their targets in terms of inflation, they've got to uh, translate it in a way that, that people can understand. And we're not doing that. You know, I, without getting too much into specific uh, actions being taken by major central banks right now, you know, I want to just talk a little bit more about this sort of intellectual landscape. And we see this uh, movement towards um, policies or frameworks that seek to avoid past mistakes. And the Fed is uh, engaging or announced a new framework of average inflation targeting um, combined with a sort of more robust forward guidance. You've done a lot of work on these types of things uh, in your career. Do you see this as evolution, average inflation targeting to avoid uh, premature hikes in the future? 
And do you think there's more that uh, central banks can do with sort of state contingent forward guidance, very clear levels that they set before which they would consider hiking rates? Or do you think the sort of current, uh, or are they sort of, uh, I guess, at the state of the art, so to speak, in terms of what can be done with this tool? Yeah, look, I don't want to. I don't want to comment on specific uh, uh, decisions by specific central banks. Uh, I mean, you can you can put very sophisticated words and and concepts on that. I think at the end of the day, uh, it uh, a lot of what is being done today in, in different places amounts to just making sure that you will have maximum flexibility to cope with uh, with economic uncertainty, and as you said, um, kind of. Uh, tilting the discussion so that uh, you're on the right side of the discussion and you prefer, you don't want to take the risk of having even lower inflation, given uh, that you're at or close to the lower bound in terms of your interest rates, um, and uh, and given the, uh, the, harmf- the harmful consequences of deflation for the economy. So you want to be, uh, in terms of risk management, right, you want to be on the right side of that uh, of that risk. And uh, if you if you're going to take a chance, that will be the chance of a of a higher inflation, because then you know what to do. That's how I understand what they're all saying, right? Yeah. And then you can put very fancy concepts on it, uh, which is which is fine. But uh, as long as you as the outcome is that you keep a lot of flexibility, uh, and uh, you are on the side of caution in terms of not allowing a deflation to happen, I think that's fine. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think the exact framework matters matters too much. All right. Uh, well, Benoit, I really enjoyed that conversation, and I feel like I actually uh, have a, uh, let's say, a, a, the start of a good understanding of central bank digital currencies. You, you did a really good job of, of framing the discussion. So thank you so much. Okay, very good. So I, I hope now you know why we are why we're doing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Definitely more than before. Thanks. Absolutely. That was great. Thank you. I found that conversation very, very interesting. And one thing that I did appreciate was Benoit's framing of a lot of these issues or debates, not as technological problems, but as political problems or political issues that need to be decided by governments. Yes, I think to me, that was like the, the big takeaway, too. So there's obviously the technological side that's interesting. There are some exciting things that can theoretically follow from the technological innovations, whether it's advances in payments, the ability for people to engage in uh, finance outside of just um, sort of interface with commercial banks. But it does feel like these are all sort of um, the big questions are still have to be fought over politically, how any country actually wants to set these up and the parameters of digital currency. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that came through from the conversation, the idea that not every CBDC is going to look the same and countries might have different things or different problems that they're actually looking to solve when they issue these. And for instance, you brought up the discussion about privacy. There might be certain countries in the world, um, you know, I don't know, Cayman Islands, Bermuda, places like that, where anonymity of central bank digital money could work and could even be valued, right. um, but that might not, not necessarily be the case in other parts of the world. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is the question of anonymity is super important because look, that is a really important aspect of cash, right? Like people like cash for that reason, but cash is going away. It's being used less and less because A, you know, we have our phones and there's all kinds of sort of digital money infrastructure out in the wild, but also just on the internet, there is no way to spend cash. And so the question is, if there's a, uh, if we, if we transport sort of the concept of cash to the internet and such that I can pay you for something um, directly without us having to use a commercial bank, do I get to keep what is a pretty fundamental characteristic of cash, which is that privacy? And if not, I think that's like a potentially sort of a, a loss and a worrisome thing for sort of uh, civil, civil liberties and rights if that goes away. You know, one thing that never ceases to amaze me, and I was thinking about during that conversation, is just how many different types of money there actually are. And people say money, but of course, yeah, you know, there's so many variations. There's the sort of commercial back end money that Benoit was talking about a lot. Um, there's obviously cash, and I don't know, like I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's just, it's just remarkable. You know what I think is what I always think about is interesting mm-hmm. is that like. When people think of money, like when they think of like a dollar or a euro, I think the first thing that usually comes to mind is the physical version. Right. What I realize, what I've like sort of like come to appreciate over the years is the physical version is like the weird freak show thing that doesn't <laughs> really fit into anything else. So we tend to, th- they're not the same. And, you know, like the, the physical money, the cash that we have like in our pocket, that's like this like narrow slice of the money system. It doesn't even really make sense. Most money is credit, but uh, it's not. It's the direct liability of the central bank, but that's also strange because what does it mean to be a liability? All the other forms of money, whether it's the money that I have in bank, whether it's the money that I have in Venmo, whether it's the money that banks have held at the central bank, at the Federal Reserve, that all sort of like fits into like this sort of like nice sort of like framework of like credit money that is essentially Mm. the core of the system. And so the money that most people think of is like the weird exception and not the rule at all. Yeah. I think when you think about it that way, the discussions around CBDC make a lot more sense. Like why central banks would be trying to solve the problem basically of cash being such a weird thing and serving such a unique role, a unique, albeit changing role in society. You know, the, the other thing is, like, we talked about privacy. I mean, there are some people who, are, like, really see the privacy aspects of cash uh, to be a super negative. I mean, like, uh, um, who is it that um, Ken Rogoff? Mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote a book basically about how awful cash is, uh, how it facilitates crime and tax evasion and corruption and other stuff. So while there are some people who are like, okay, Online digital currencies may solve the problem of anonymous payments on the internet in a world without cash. The other people say, like, this is really exciting because we can get rid of cash and then there's no more anonymous payments anymore. And then we can go against all these ills like drug dealing and money laundering and stuff like that. So some people see this as a huge opportunity to fix what they see as one of the major flaws of money right now. I mean, other people argue also that there are less harmful forms of digital cash already in existence, such as uh, gift cards issued by Visa and MasterCard, things like that. Um, Okay, well, 
clearly there's a lot to unpack when it comes to the very nature of money and uh, we will of course keep talking about it on all thoughts it's a perennial favorite of ours but for now should we leave it there let's leave it there this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. And follow our guest, Benoit Couré, on Twitter. He's at B. Couré. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.